three, two, one. Thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week is uh, our Memorial Day edition, and we're going to be talking about uh, the specifics of that holiday, uh, what it means to remember the fallen, because that's what Memorial Day is. It's a holiday whereby we commemorate those who gave their lives in service to their country, whether in times of war or in times of peace. If they were in uniform or on duty when they died, then Memorial Day is for them. Uh, not to be confused with Veterans Day, which is a separate holiday, which is for all of those who have served, whether they, uh, whether they fell or not. And I know sometimes it's, it's easy folks get those mixed up, and I'm sure lots of other veterans like myself have heard folks on Memorial Day say thank you for your service, which, which we still, you know, we appreciate that. It's a nice sentiment. Uh, but just, just to clarify, though, Memorial Day is only for those who, who died in service of their country, whereas Veterans Day is for everyone who served. So having said that, um, we're not the first, the United States is not nearly the first country to have a tradition like Memorial Day, and I'm sure we won't be the last either. But there are instances in the past, uh, there's a few examples of history that I want to use today to sort of illustrate uh, the, the type of thinking and what goes into the effort to commemorate those who have fallen uh, in battle or in service to their to their nation, and not always nation. If you go back far enough, and the first example that I'll use, which is uh, Pericles' funeral oration, actually refers to those who died fighting for Athens, which is not really what we would call a modern nation. It was more like a city-state. That's one example. The two other examples I want to use, the second one, and I'll go in reverse chronological order. I mean, I'll go with the oldest first, which is Pericles' funeral oration, and then the second one is in Henry from Henry V, St. Crispin's Day speech, and we got a nice clip of uh, Kenneth Branagh doing an, an excellent job of, uh, prevent, of rather presenting um, that speech, which is pretty short. Um, and then third, the Gettysburg Address, which in the United States during the Civil War, President Lincoln gave to commemorate a new national cemetery for those who had died uh, in battle. So all what these things have in common is they, they are all an effort by the speaker to confer meaning onto the deaths of those who fell in battle or who died uh, in service of their country or, or their city-state in the case of, case of Athens. And so that, that's sort of um, the common theme that runs between these. I'm, I'm sure that there are many other examples uh, in, in world history of similar addresses or similar speeches or writings that are also designed to do the same thing. But, but these three, to me, uh, really stand out um, because of the way they were written, the time they were given, and, and sort of just the, um, the message they convey when you read those. And so we'll start with the, um, the funeral oration of Pericles. And, and just to set the stage for you a little bit, this was given after, I think, the end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War. So this is back in the 5th century. That's the 400s. So we're now in the 21st century, which means this is around 1600, I guess, years ago, roughly, uh, give or take a century. So that's, that's pretty much the time frame that we're looking at. And this was the, 
the custom in Athens was to choose someone uh, when they commemorated their their dead, those who had fallen in battle. It was a public. There was a public funeral that was done so that folks could come to the to the center of the city where the remains were on display or laid out. Um, we would call that today lying in state. But at that time, they were simply laid out for folks to come by and pay their respects. And so the, the Athenians chose Pericles, who was one of their most gifted speakers uh, and had a, a good reputation for being able to be very persuasive in the, uh, the public forum, which at the time, you know, for Athens was a, a, a sort of a pure democracy, a smaller group of people. And you went into the assembly and folks would just say their piece and they would take a vote. And that's sort of how how things got decided and how they decided what they were going to do. You know, critically, in the case of Athens, when folks were taking a vote on whether or not to go to war, for those who were voting, it was a pretty big deal because they weren't voting to send someone else to go fight. They, they were voting on whether or not they were going to war. So the outcome of that vote meant the next day you either got up and went to battle yourself or you didn't. So it was a pretty high stakes type of uh, type of vote in those those circumstances and Pericles when he gave the the funeral oration which we'll get to in just a second was not only trying to commemorate the, the those who had died in battle against Sparta but he was also trying to persuade his fellow Athenians not to give up and to continue that battle to continue the fight against Sparta and as we know from history, he was successful in that endeavor as the Peloponnesian War continued. But so this, so here we are. We're going to start with the the funeral oration from Pericles. And as you're listening, pay attention to the way Pericles frames the events of the conflict. Pay attention to the way he assigns a specific meaning to the deaths of those who've already fallen. In battle, and keep in mind that he's doing that because he wants to persuade the Athenians to continue the fight. This version of the funeral oration of Pericles is read by an individual who calls himself the, the refers to himself as a timeless reader. You can find it on YouTube, uh, but this is just a, a recording, and they do a pretty good, pretty nice job. Uh, not not a professional actor by any means, uh, as we'll get to with the Kenneth Branagh piece from uh, Saint Christmas Day speech, but still a, a pretty decent job of uh, of reading it. So here we go. The funeral oration of Pericles. Most of those who have spoken here before me have commended the lawgiver who added this oration to our other funeral customs. It seemed to them a worthy thing that such an honor should be given at their burial to the dead who have fallen on the field of battle. But I should have preferred that, when men's deeds have been brave, they should be honored indeed only and with such an honor as this public funeral which you are now witnessing. Then the reputation of many would not have been imperiled on the eloquence or want of eloquence of one, and their virtues believed or not, as he spoke well or ill. For it is difficult to say neither too little nor too much, and even moderation is apt not to give the impression of truthfulness. The friend of the dead who knows the facts is likely to think that the words of the speaker fall short of his knowledge and of his wishes. Another who is not so well informed when he hears of anything which surpasses his own powers will be envious and will suspect exaggeration. Mankind are tolerant of the praises of others so long as each hearer thinks that he can do as well, or nearly as well, himself. 
but when the speaker rises above him, jealousy is aroused, and he begins to be incredulous. However, since our ancestors have set the seal of their approval upon the practice, I must obey, and to the utmost of my power shall endeavor to satisfy the wishes and beliefs of all who hear me. I will speak first of our ancestors, for it is right and seemly that now, when we are lamenting the dead, a tribute should be paid to their memory. There has never been a time when they did not inhabit this land, which by their valor they will have handed down from generation to generation, and we have received from them a free state. But if they were worthy of praise, still more were our fathers, who added to their inheritance, and after many a struggle transmitted to us their sons this great empire. And we ourselves, assembled here today, who are still most of us, in the vigor of life, have carried the work of improvement further, and have richly endowed our city with all things, so that she is sufficient for herself both in peace and war. Of the military exploits by which our various possessions were acquired, or of the energy with which we or our fathers drove back the tide of war, Hellenic or barbarian, I will not speak, for the tale would be long and is familiar to you. But before I praise the dead, I should like to point out by what principles of action we rose to power, and under what institutions, and through what manner of life our empire became great. For I conceive that such thoughts are not unsuited to the occasion, and that this numerous assembly of citizens and strangers may profitably listen to them. Our form of government does not enter into rivalry with the institutions of others. Our government does not copy our neighbors, but is an example to them. It is true that we are called a democracy, for the administration is in the hands of the many and not of the few. But while there exists equal justice to all and alike in their private disputes, the claim of excellence is also recognized, and when a citizen is in any way distinguished, he is preferred to the public service not as a matter of privilege, but as the reward of merit. Neither is poverty an obstacle, but a man may benefit his country, whatever the obscurity of his condition. There is no exclusiveness in our public life, and in our private business we are not suspicious of one another, nor angry with our neighbor if he does what he likes. We do not put on sour looks at him which, though harmless, are not pleasant. While we are thus unconstrained in our private business, a spirit of reverence pervades our public acts. We are prevented from doing wrong by respect for the authorities and for the laws, having a particular regard to those which are ordained for the protection of the injured, as well as those unwritten laws which bring upon the transgressor of them the reprobation of the general sentiment." And we have not forgotten to provide for our weary spirits many relaxations from toil. We have regular games and sacrifices throughout the year. Our homes are beautiful and elegant. And the delight which we daily feel in all these things helps to banish sorrow. Because of the greatness of our city, the fruits of the whole earth flow in upon us 
so that we enjoy the goods of other countries as freely as our own. Then, again, our military training is in many respects superior to that of our adversaries. Our city is thrown open to the world, though, and we never expel a foreigner and prevent him from seeing or learning anything of which the secret, if revealed to an enemy, might profit him. We rely not upon management or trickery, but upon our own hearts and hands. And in the matter of education, whereas they from early youth are always undergoing laborious exercises which are to make them brave, we live at ease, and yet are equally ready to face the perils which they face. And here is the proof. The Lacedaemonians come into Athenian territory not by themselves, but with their whole confederacy following. We go alone into a neighbor's country, and although our opponents are fighting for their homes, and we on a foreign soil, we have seldom any difficulty in overcoming them. Our enemies have never yet felt our united strength. The care of a navy divides our attention and on land we are obliged to send our own citizens everywhere. But they, if they meet and defeat a part of our army, are as proud as if they had routed us all. And when defeated, they pretend to have been vanquished by us all. If then we prefer to meet danger with a light heart, but without laborious training, and with a courage which is gained by habit and not enforced by law, are we not greatly the better for it? Since we do not anticipate the pain, although, when the hour comes, we can be as brave as those who never allow themselves to rest. Thus our city is equally admirable in peace and in war, for we are lovers of the beautiful in our tastes, and our strength lies, in our opinion, not in deliberation and discussion, but that knowledge which is gained by discussion preparatory to action, for we have a peculiar power of thinking before we act, and of acting too, whereas other men are courageous from ignorance, but hesitate upon reflection. And they are surely to be esteemed the bravest spirits who, having the clearest sense both of the pains and pleasures of life, do not on that account shrink from danger. In doing good, again, we are unlike others. We make our friends by conferring, not by receiving favors. Now he who confers a favor is the firmer friend, because he would rather by kindness keep alive the memory of an obligation. But the recipient is colder in his feelings, because he knows that in requiting another's generosity he will not be winning gratitude, but only paying a debt. We alone do good to our neighbors, not upon a calculation of interest, but in the confidence of freedom, and in a frank and fearless spirit. To sum up, I say that Athens is the school of Hellas, and that the individual Athenian in his own person seems to have the power of adapting himself to the most varied forms of action with the utmost versatility and grace. This is no passing an idle word, but truth and fact and the assertion is verified by the position to which these qualities have raised the state. For in the hour of trial, Athens alone, among her contemporaries, is superior to the report of her. 
No enemy who comes against her is indignant at the reverses which he sustains at the hands of such a city. No subject complains that his masters are unworthy of him. And we shall assuredly not be without witnesses. There are mighty monuments of our power which will make us the wonder of this and of succeeding ages. We shall not need the praises of Homer or of any other panegyrist whose poetry may please for the moment, although his representation of the facts will not bear the light of day. For we have compelled every land and every sea to open a path for our valor, and have everywhere planted eternal memorials of our friendship and of our enmity. Such is the city for whose sake these men nobly fought and died. They could not bear the thought that she might be taken from them, and every one of us who survive should gladly toil on her behalf. I have dwelt upon the greatness of Athens, because I want to show you that we are contending for a higher prize than those who enjoy none of these privileges, and to establish by manifest proof the merit of these men whom I am now commemorating. Their loftiest praise has been already spoken, for in magnifying the city I have magnified them, and men like them, whose virtues made her glorious. And of how few Hellenes can it be said as of them, that their deeds, when weighed in the balance, have been found equal to their fame. I believe that a death such as theirs has been the true measure of a man's worth. It may be the first revelation of his virtues, but is at any rate their final seal. For even those who come short in other ways may justly plead the valor with which they have fought for their country. They have blotted out the evil with the good, and have benefited the state more by their public services than they have injured her by their private actions. None of these men were enervated by wealth or hesitated to resign the pleasures of life. None of them put off the evil day in the hope, natural to poverty, that a man, though poor, may one day become rich. But, deeming that the punishment of their enemies was sweeter than any of these things, and that they could fall in no nobler cause, they determined at the hazard of their lives to be honorably avenged, and to leave the rest. They resigned to hope their unknown chance of happiness, but in the face of death they resolved to rely upon themselves alone. And when the moment came, they were minded to resist and suffer, rather than to fly and save their lives. They ran away from the word of dishonor, but on the battlefield their feet stood fast, and in an instant, at the height of their fortune, they passed away from the scene, not of their fear, but of their glory. Such was the end of these men. They were worthy of Athens and the living need not desire to have a more heroic spirit, although they may pray for a less fatal issue. The value of such a spirit is not to be expressed in words. Anyone can discourse to you forever about the advantages of a brave defense, which you know already. But instead of listening to him, I would have you day by day fix your eyes upon the greatness of Athens until you become filled with the love of her, and when you are impressed by the spectacle of her glory, reflect that this empire has been acquired by men who knew their duty and had the courage to do it, 
who in the hour of conflict had the fear of dishonor always present to them, and who, if ever they failed in an enterprise, would not allow their virtues to be lost to their country, but freely gave their lives to her as the fairest offering which they could present at her feast. The sacrifice which they collectively made was individually repaid to them, for they received again, each one for himself, a praise which grows not old, and the noblest of all tombs. I speak not of that in which their remains are laid, but of that in which their glory survives, and is proclaimed always and on every fitting occasion, both in word and deed. For the whole earth is the tomb of famous men. Not only are they commemorated by columns and inscriptions in their own country, but in foreign lands there dwells also an unwritten memorial of them, graven not on stone, but in the hearts of men. Make them your examples, and, esteeming courage to be freedom, and freedom to be happiness, do not weigh too nicely the perils of war. The unfortunate, who has no hope of a change for the better, has less reason to throw away his life than the prosperous who, if he survive, is always liable to a change for the worse, and to whom any accidental fall makes the most serious difference. To a man of spirit, cowardice and disaster coming together are far more bitter than death striking him unperceived at a time when he is full of courage and animated by the general hope. Wherefore I do not now pity the parents of the dead who stand here. I would rather comfort them. You know that your dead have passed away amid manifold vicissitudes, and that they may be deemed fortunate who have gained their utmost honor, whether an honorable death like theirs, or an honorable sorrow like yours, and whose share of happiness has been so ordered that the term of their happiness is likewise the term of their life. I know how hard it is to make you feel this, when the good fortune of others will too often remind you of the gladness which once lightened your hearts. And sorrow is felt at the want of those blessings, not which a man never knew, but which were a part of his life before they were taken from him. Some of you are of an age at which they may hope to have other children, and they ought to bear their sorrow better. Not only will the children, who may hereafter be born, make them forget their own lost ones, but the city will be doubly a gainer. She will not be left desolate, and she will be safer. For a man's counsel cannot have equal weight or worth when he alone has no children to risk in the general danger. To those of you who have passed their prime, I say, congratulate yourselves that you have been happy during the greater part of your days. Remember that your life of sorrow will not last long, and be comforted by the glory of those who are gone. For the love of honor alone is ever young, and not riches, as some say, but honor is the delight of men when they are old and useless. To you who are the sons and brothers of the departed, I see that the struggle to emulate them will be an arduous one. For all men praise the dead, and, however preeminent your virtue may be, I do not say even to approach them, and avoid living their rivals and detractors. But when a man is out of the way, the honor and goodwill which he receives is unalloyed. 
and if I am to speak of womanly virtues to those of you who will henceforth be widows, let me sum them up in one short admonition to a woman not to show more weakness than is natural to her sex is a great glory and not to be talked about for good or for evil among men. I have paid the required tribute in obedience to the law, making use of such fitting words as I had. The tribute of deeds has been paid in part, for the dead have them in deeds, and it remains only that their children should be maintained at the public charge until they are grown up. This is the solid prize with which, as with a garland, Athens crowns her sons living and dead after a struggle like theirs. For where the rewards of virtue are greatest, there the noblest citizens are enlisted in the service of the state. And now, when you have duly lamented, every one of you his own dead, you may depart. Okay, so what Pericles is saying there, among other things, of course he's saying a lot of things, but one of the things he's saying there to the folks who had either relatives or friends who had died uh, in combat is that, that they didn't die for nothing. That's, you know, sort of the core of his message. They didn't die for nothing. We've built something here, as he's speaking to his fellow Athenians, we've built something here that is worth defending. And so their sacrifice means something. It is to continue a way of life and a creation, this, this city, which he called an empire, which at the time it probably seemed like it was, um, but it was to continue the way of life that we share as Athenians. And so that's one of the primary messages that he was trying to, uh, trying to get across to those who, who were in a moment of grief uh, as they were viewing those who had fallen in combat. And he wanted to remind them, as he did later, that, quote, freedom is the sure possession of those alone who have the courage to defend it. And so this is one of the reasons why that uh, Pericles' funeral oration has lasted so long and why it's been handed down uh, from generation to generation and preserved is because it resonates so much for those who have themselves suffered uh, losses uh, and have had loved ones or friends who, who died uh, in combat. And w whether that combat was, you know, with, with swords and, and shields the way that the, the hoplites did in the times of the Athenians, uh, or rather in the times of the Peloponnesian War, or whether it's with modern-day, you know, bombs and bullets, uh, it doesn't matter. The, the, the outcome is the same. So that's, I think that's one of the reasons why um, that it's lasted as long as it has. It can also be used uh, not just to commemorate those who have fallen. It's very easy, though. There's sort of a very fine line between assigning meaning to the sacrifices of those who've fallen in battle and using the, the emotions that come with that to justify uh, more fighting and continued uh, uh, new wars or the continuation of an existing war. And Pericles was doing that too because he wanted the Athenians to keep fighting. Uh, he didn't want them to give up. And so the, the use of rhetoric or persuasive language or, or you know, speeches like the funeral oration of Pericles is something that, that became uh, lots of different people throughout history, lots of different fighting forces have tried to, to do that. They want to motivate their, their forces uh, by recognizing the shared sacrifice of the, of the fallen uh, to keep fighting. And that's, that's very much the theme of our second, um, of the second example that today I wanted to use, or rather this week, uh, of the St. Crispin's Day speech. And this time, we'll, we'll, it's, it's much shorter. Uh, the, the 
Pericles, the funeral oration there is about 18, 19 minutes, but the, the St. Crispin's Day speech is much shorter. It's just, just a couple of minutes. It's three or four minutes tops. Uh, but it's given, and you can hear the music playing in the background because the example that I have for this one is of Kenneth Branagh in their uh, big screen production of, of Henry V. And so think about the, the way in which this speech is similar to what Pericles is trying to accomplish, except that Pericles was trying to mo- motivate an entire body of, of citizens, whereas you know the Henry V example written by Shakespeare, you have someone who's trying directly to inspire other troops who are getting ready to go into battle. Uh, they're outnumbered by the French at the Battle of Agincourt, and so he's trying to convince them to keep fighting. And so here we can listen to uh, the example of the St. Christmas Day speech. Ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. Rather, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when this day is named and arouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian's. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in their mouths as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few. We happy few. We band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! Okay, so we hear some of the same type of themes echoed in the St. Crispin's Day speech. Both both uh, examples, the, the funeral oration and the St. Christmas Day speech, are referring to the glory of those who, who died in combat, um, where Pericles is reminding the audience of those who have already died in battle, 
the St. Christmas Day speech is trying to tell those who are about to die in battle, that even if they do, that the glory of remembrance will be theirs forever and that no one will forget their name. So that, that's a similar thing that we heard uh, in Pericles' funeral oration as well about the lasting legacy of those who die in battle in order to defend their fellows, whether it's in a, a city-state or a nation or community. Um, it's the same thing. So th- those two things, you know, they, they do have some parallels that we can learn from uh, on Memorial Day which is the, the, way in, the way in which the sacrifices of the fallen can be used not only to remember, but also to inspire uh, current and future generations to fight when they deem it necessary. And the final example that I wanted to use today was the Gettysburg Address by President Lincoln. Of course, this is the shortest of all three examples. Um, this one's uh, very brief, even shorter than the St. Christmas Day speech, but still... Uh, this is an example of a, of a leader during a time of, of war and crisis uh, trying to confer a larger meaning on the sacrifices and hardships and sufferings of the people that are involved. And those are things which would go on in the course of, of Memorial Day in the United States, which is an American holiday, but it, it was founded after the Civil War uh, when communities began uh, putting flags or flowers on the headstones of those who had fallen and you know gradually over time so many communities and so many places started doing it at the same time that it it sort of gained momentum until it was eventually recognized and and formalized as a holiday uh, in the United States. But anyway here so here is the uh, the Gettysburg Address read by Sam Watterson the the famous actor. For those of you who ever watched uh, Law and Order that's just one example uh, but anyway, that's, this is uh, Sam Watterson reading the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation for any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note or long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here 
have thus so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And of course we know from history that Lincoln was correct that the world would remember what was done in Gettysburg and other battlefields from the Civil War, though he was slightly wrong. Uh, that they also remembered what was said there as the Gettysburg Address, written on the, the back of an envelope, so uh, legend has it, has become one of the more well-known pieces of oratory uh, recorded in American history, and no, known, of course, not only to Americans, but uh, around the world as well, as a, a remarkable address and a remarkable presentation given uh, to a nation during a time of, of great crisis and, and great uh, strife, as the Civil War certainly was. So, I guess when we when we think about Memorial Day and we look back on uh, some examples from history, both in American history and from other parts of the world, uh, we can see that there's a, a desire almost always on the part of people uh, that have suffered conflict uh, and have lost loved ones, and especially for nations who have seen many perish in combat, to find a way to confer meaning on those sacrifices. And that is one of the things that Memorial Day does. So I hope folks will take just some time to think about that. I'd also like to add that when it comes to Memorial Day and the, and the meaning and the sacrifices of those who have fallen, I believe it, is also, it also means that we owe them a debt. And that debt can only be paid by our continuing efforts to preserve and defend what they died uh, defending. So the, the business of running the nation, and even though it can be messy, and I'm sure it will be this year as an election year, politics is going to be ugly as it always is, uh, but things, and we have very real challenges that we have to, to deal with in our time, but it is, uh, it is our debt to those who pave the way for us to have the country that we, we now live in to take care of it and to do our best to continue uh, to defend it. And that is, uh, that is a debt that we owe those who gave their lives. And so I hope that folks will remember that, too, uh, on Memorial Day. So thanks for listening, and I hope everyone has a great Memorial Day weekend.